Hey, 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 Pop Culture Quorum Deo, back after a bit of a break. We've had new babies, we've had COVID, we've had devastating snowstorms, but we're back, baby. I'm Jeff Wright, one of your regular hosts. On this episode, we've got a heavy and important subject lined up. On this one, we're talking about suicide and how Christians should think about suicide. In our last segment, we're taking a look at the 2006 documentary, The Bridge, as part of the program. But before that, we've got an interview lined up we trust you will find very helpful. We're talking to Dr. Samuel Stevens, who is Assistant Professor of Biblical Counseling at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Stevens is also Director of the Training Center Certification for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, which you may have heard referred to as ACBC. He earned both his Ph.D. in Biblical Counseling and M.A. in Christian Education from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, where he served in the administration of the Terry School of Educational Ministries. He also has a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of Tennessee at Martin. You'll hear Dr. Stevens bring a clear-headed, biblically informed, and compassionate perspective to the table in our conversation about suicide. So let's get started on that conversation now. Samuel Stevens, thank you so much for being on the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. It is a treat to have you here. Uh, it's not a subject that I think anybody's sort of delighted to uh, have to deal with the way Christians are called to. Uh, but nonetheless, we're glad to have you here to help us talk about a difficult subject. So thanks for being here. How are you doing yeah, today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep, doing well. Doing very well. I'm glad to, glad to be here with you guys. Good. We appreciate it. Uh, Jared, I'm going to work from some questions you helped develop. And if, um, if we could do it this way, gentlemen, Sam, I'm going to aim questions at you. And then, Jared, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the first follow-up. And uh, if I have anything to add or move the conversation on, I'll go after you two gentlemen. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Sounds great, man. All right. Well, Sam, could you start just helping our listeners understand you better? Jared and I did an intro before here, but I'd like to let listeners hear your own story from your own lips. So, uh, you know, how were you converted? What's your educational background? Um, when you come to the subject of suicide, what what are the qualifications yeah. you're drawing on? Yeah. So I, one thing I have to say is that uh, first and first and foremost, uh, besides, of course, being a believer, I'm a Tennessee boy as well. So now I'm in I'm in the state of Missouri and I, I'm in Kansas City right now. Love it. But uh, I, I was looking forward to get on here with a couple of my brethren from uh, the state of Tennessee. So I'm looking uh, forward to chatting with you guys today. But uh, yeah, grew up in grew up in West Tennessee uh, over on the near the Mississippi River and uh, into uh, pr- uh, thankfully a God fearing home. My, my father and mother are uh, believers. And uh, and raised us in that kind of atmosphere, and so uh, have the privilege of saying my dad uh, led me to the Lord when I was a young man, nine years old. I was uh, very young, um, but uh, I understood a lot because I'd been exposed to it. My parents were were big believers in having me uh, in the church service. I mean, I, I did the Sunday school thing, but they really um, modeled uh, what corporate worship looked like and the importance behind that. And it was just faithful preaching from the Word that. Uh, and I think that's most of our testimonies, right? The Word of God uh, reaching us and the Lord drawing uh, drawing me near to Him. And uh, I confess Christ at nine. Um, but my growth in the Lord uh, was a little bit delayed. Um, and that's no one's fault necessarily but my own. But um, I think in some in some fashion, uh, I, I wasn't, not that my parents at all were negligent. They weren't. Uh, they both loved, loved the Lord and loved me and, and definitely modeled for me what... Um, Christian, the Christian life looked like, I think, very much pressing into the Lord. Not They weren't perfect parents, but definitely God-fearing ones. Uh, but it really wasn't until college where I began to take um, 
if you want to put it this way, ownership of my faith. I began to really grow in the Lord. And um, uh, although I was always involved with the local church, um, I was told from a pretty young age, not from my parents, but from other people, that the, the, the atmosphere of the church was, uh, if you're not an adult, your job is really just to sit down, be quiet, and stay out of the way. Uh, don't be a troublemaker. Uh, which I, I don't think I was. I think my parents probably argue with that, but uh, I, that's what I did. I stayed out of the way. And um, it, but it wasn't until I had some um, some of my first mentors. Actually, it was it was in a, a campus ministry setting that uh, really called me out of myself and called me to uh, to live the life, the new life that Christ had given to me, and uh, began to engage with the scriptures in a new way than I had before. And 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 through that, and even really into my call into seminary after after college. Uh, grew just more in love with the local church. Funny enough, I um, I, I so I moved to Texas, which I never thought I would do. <laughs> uh, but they're all right. They're all right there in Texas. I moved to Texas to go to Southwestern Seminary, and it was actually in seminary that I think my my love for the church was reignited. Um, some past hurts from the church and seeing some things just not reflected well uh, uh, was was turned around, and I said, you know, the church is not unblemished, but she is the bride of our Lord. And uh, I fell more in love with that. And I actually moved to Texas to to get a degree in campus ministry. Funny enough, I was going to go back to do campus ministry work. Uh, but but the Lord just, again, reignited my love for the local church. It was in seminary that I was exposed to something I'd never heard about before. And that was the idea of biblical counseling. Um, if you had asked me about counseling or anything like that before uh, I moved to seminary, I would have told you, I, I would have had, you know, I think it may be a cultural understanding of it, but I, it would have nothing to do with me. Uh, I, you know, I don't. I, I knew some friends that had gone to counseling. I never had personally, so I thought that's eh, something that specialists do in clinics outside of the church. And uh, I'm, I'm here to be trained as a minister and pastor, and that's all there is. Uh, but it did intrigue me this idea of biblical counseling, and I'd found I actually found a flyer that uh, was on campus about a weekend training. And it was going to help us to uh, engage with the word in such a way that we could actually help people with the real life problems that they face. And again, that intrigued me. I thought back about my time in, in, in college as I worked in this campus ministry as an intern and some of past ministry experience. And I thought, that sounds a lot like what I did uh, in college. Uh, discipleship. It sounded like discipleship to me. So I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to just check it out. So I, I attended a couple weekends. And uh, I was hooked. Uh, I was exposed to um, a man named Jay Adams, who I'd never heard about, faithful uh, pastor uh, who had founded this movement that I'd never heard about. <laughs> and, and I was exposed to neuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. And uh, from there just began just a, a journey for me. That was about eight years ago. Uh, so I've grown in, in my love for the word in a new way, but also my training. The Lord opened up a door for me to pursue my Ph.D., which, again, was uh, not something I was looking at. <laughs> I wanted to to go and live my life now, and I was done with seminary and went back into academia and pursued a, a PhD in biblical counseling at, at Southwestern Seminary. And then uh, that led to me uh, actually joining uh, a an organization that Jay Adams founded, uh, now called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And uh, so I, I now work on staff with them. Uh, so again, it's just kind of come full circle. I I, I think that's really neat. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but just last week, Jay went to be with the Lord. Uh, he was 90. And uh, it's a, a very sorrowful, but a very joyful day for us. It's kind of mixed feelings around here. But uh, we were able to present a fetch grift to him in his honor. 
and he signed it for me. I've got it here in my office. So I'm just looking back in the Lord. It's been a whirlwind, but it's been a great journey. Uh, the second part of your question about, uh, you know, how, how can I, you know, what special training or, or qualifications or credentials do I have to maybe speak to this? Uh, I think maybe my first answer to that is nothing special. Uh, I think, you know, as I've been as I've been engaging with the word and again, exposed to this idea of soul care. And this is a historical idea, right? This is not something that we just came up with or Jay did back in the 70s. But the idea that uh, as Christians, not just pastors, I think especially pastors, but all believers, um, when we give advice, when we comfort others, when we come alongside, we are in essence counseling. And in fact, I would even dare say we're reclaiming counseling from what the culture has taken from us. Mm-hmm. And so um, as, it, as it relates to all of those things, if I know of someone who is hurting to the point where they're actually considering something like this, um, I'm no longer afraid or think, wow, I, I don't have special training. I've got to send them to someone else outside of the church that can help them with this. I see it, number one, as um, a spiritual issue uh, because it all uh, or, I mean, originates from uh, within ourselves, from our hearts, but also our relationship and view of God. And that can obviously impact the physical. And uh, I, if I've got the word of God and I have the spirit of God, then I have what I need to address it in a fruitful way for, my, for both me as it ministers to me, but also that person. So uh, in that sense, uh, um, I feel like uh, what Jay said, uh, I am competent to counsel and to address that. Um, I have, of course, uh, gone through a lot of training through, through ACBC. I'm an ACBC certified member as well as working on staff. So we do a lot of training and thinking about how to address different issues that people deal with. And of course, my seminary training was helpful in that sense as well. But uh, that's how I would uh, answer that question about um, the importance of this matter. Kind of how it so relates the, to my So the word, um, so you'd say the scriptures are sufficient, that they help, um, that they are the source or the best source, you would say, to answer this question concerning how to, uh, you know, help someone who's. Uh, thinking of, of self-harm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, unapologetically, absolutely. Um, and uh, again, I, I think before I had really began to, to engage, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was chatting with you guys about this before we, we started, but uh, when I came to seminary, um, you, you know, I and we were trained to think about pastoral ministry, and, and a lot of the emphasis was on preaching, as it should be. Praise the Lord. Um, uh, expositional, uh, exegetical preaching. I mean, the word is, the scriptures are the, the word of God, they're the word of life. But when it came to, I, I found something very interesting as I began to take more classes and talk with more of my peers. And, and then again, especially as I was exposed to this idea of, of the personal ministry of the word, what we would call counseling, that uh, there seemed to be a, I don't know, a, a functional divide between, in many people's minds, between preaching the word and the word being sufficient there in the pulpit, but the word being more supplementary when it came to other realms of care. And I never, I, I had a problem with that. I, I, I saw that more and more and I thought, where is that coming from? And why does that seem to be the case? Uh, when when, when uh, I knew a lot of my friends who were pastors that uh, they had uh, members of their flock that were having marital problems and they didn't go to the word first. Uh, they maybe went to the word but they would go to a psychologist first, or they would go to, to other systems first. And I thought, well, okay, isn't shepherding a couple through marriage pretty much the same job? And this is what pastors do. 
we're, we're not just preachers, we're pastors. So aren't we concerned about every area and aspect of life? So yeah, I think what we need to do is, and part of what ACBC is about, and which really made me very enthusiastic about biblical counseling, it's about reclaiming practically, not just verbally or confessionally, the sufficiency of scripture, right? And so um, that's what we're about. And I think it does absolutely speak to things like suicidal thoughts and, and threats of suicide and things like that. Mm. I appreciate so much what I'm hearing here. Uh, Jared and I have talked about this on a previous episode, but really one of the real staggering realizations I had as I became a pastor and started talking to other pastors is how many of them just don't do this. And it's distressed me. One, I think part of it is that we're playing into this professionalization of ministry thing so that everything has to be a specialist and we shunt people off to this. But I've also heard guys just say, like, I don't like to counsel, so I refer. And kind of following you there, Sam, I, I don't know how to pastor without doing counseling, a specific application from the word. And so it's encouraging to hear someone in yeah. in the field sort of saying, no, no, we the Bible can help guys in the local church care for one another, you know, that, that it oh, really sure. is accessible. That's right. Well, and I actually, I remember you guys talking about that. I listened to that that episode and I, I really, my heart was just very full. Uh, and, and, you know, here's the good news. I, I think it's, it's easy to get discouraged. There's a lot of pastors out there that I think a big part of it is they've never been exposed to this idea, right? So, and in, 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 I've done a little bit of study on this in, in my, my doctoral research. This was very much the, um, the defer and refer model, right, uh, to, to pastoral ministry. This was the major model for uh, 80, 90 years in, in theological education, uh, definitely in the States and elsewhere. And so we're just in the, you know, in the early stages of, of turning that tide and changing that around. And I think a lot of seminaries are seeing the value. Um, I, I, I have the privilege of teaching at Midwestern Seminary here in Kansas City as well. And uh, they see the overall vision of for the church that counseling is for the church just as much as missions and 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 preaching and and different facets. So um, I'm so grateful for them to say that they see the value behind that. But I think a lot of I think one a lot of um, faithful pastors just really have never been exposed to it. They feel ill-equipped because all they've ever heard is you can't engage with this in a fruitful way for your people. So uh, part of what we do as ACBC is helping pastors and faithful church members alike. Um, get the resources that they need, get the training that they need, and more importantly, just the words saying, yeah, you, you actually can. Uh, this is very much within our realm of responsibility. And uh, it's been neat to see. I, I speak to pastors all over the country all the time, and there are more out there than we would than we know of that are on the same page as we are. They just, uh, they just don't have that network. So uh, anyway, hopefully this will be an encouragement to some out there. For sure, for sure. Well, so we're here to talk about the subject of suicide, and this kind of developed out of Jared accidentally kicking a hornet's nest a few months ago <laughs> on Twitter. Um, so I'm going to use a quote from Dr. Susan Condone to sort of frame the conversation. But before I present that, I just want to make sure that I'm clear about this. She's articulated this idea, and so I want I think it's a good way to start talking about the subject. I don't mean this to be sort of an indictment of her position. I just think this is a profitable quote to start the conversation on. And what she has said is, suicide is death due to illness. And so, again, I'm going to roll the ball to Sam first. Jared, you follow up after that. When you hear suicide is death due to illness, what is your initial sort of uh, response to that? 
I think my, and this is part of the, and Jared, you you, you know all about this going through a, a, a PhD. It, it makes you question everything. <laughs> so I think my and my initial reaction is I have a lot more questions than answers to a statement like that. Um, now, I wasn't involved with that conversation on Twitter, so I don't know where she was coming from or what she was meaning. But um, outside of you know several questions that I would have about what that actually means, my assumption would be that she's referring to the, the the suicidal ideations being a result of some sort of mental illness. That would be my 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 guess, and that my guess comes from the fact that that's a pretty popular and widely held view from definitely from those outside of the church. That's the standard view. Um, anyone that has troubles of any sort struggle with a mental illness. Um, but definitely from those, unfortunately, within the church, that's also very common, commonly held. Um, I, I would I would push back on on that if that was the, the approach, uh, saying we should be very cautious to be quick to embrace that as the the end all to the conversation. It seems like a kind of a way to shut down any type of engagement there. And I don't think that's fruitful. Uh, I've learned also, Jared, very personally that uh, Twitter can be a. Uh, um, not a very productive place for conversation sometimes, but that's not your fault. It's just the way things <laughs> go um, in our culture. But yeah, I, you know, again, there are more questions than answers regarding the whole mental illness complex. Uh, I would encourage some of your listeners to to also jump on uh, ACBC's podcast, if I can shamelessly like uh, sure. promote that, but we call it Truth and Love. And our director, Dale Johnson, and I both have did a series back in May, uh, which is Mental Illness uh, or Mental Health Awareness Month, excuse me. And we actually covered several of these topics, the, the history of psychiatry, uh, have we come to a place where we've understand, we, we understand now uh, problems across the spectrum being biologically oriented and, and caused uh, versus something that actually has a spiritual, a major spiritual component. And so I would argue, you know, uh, first off, mental illness is a very ambiguous term, and it's not a term that has any type of consensus whatsoever, especially within the field of psychiatry. Um, if you look at what, what is known as the Bible of Psychiatry, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, that's a mouthful, right? Uh, the DSM, uh, it, it, they even say in the DSM-5, the most recent edition, uh, we don't have a consensus on this uh, definition. Hmm. So it's really hard to sit around and say, yeah, these are all caused by mental illness when the term itself is, is uh, quite bloated and it's a large umbrella term. Uh, secondly, a lot of the... Um, and we could go, this could be a whole other topic, but a lot of the, you know, a lot of the proponents of mental illness would and do come at it from a perspective of, of a, a medical or biological psychiatric approach. And so their argument is that there's science behind a lot of these diagnoses or, or behavioral problems or emotional problems. And the truth of it is, again, the field itself attests to the fact that there is no scientific consensus at all regarding a lot of this. Um, Actually, most of it's very philosophical uh, versus scientific. It's more scientism than science. And mm. so I, I, would, I would say to our, your listeners, um, uh, you know, exercise a lot of caution regarding those things. Unfortunately, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's big business, um, and it's a, a, a broadly embraced system for viewing uh, problems that people face in the world. Uh, you know, these... It, it, the, Without waxing eloquent, it all goes back to um, a redefinition of who we are as people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if there is a God, if there is a spiritual component, if actually if there's a spiritual world that we live in, 
then we might be responsible for our actions. Um, <laughs> we might um, we might have a purpose that's not just what we make it to be. Uh, however, if there's not, then we've got no problem. But then there's that sticky issue that we have to talk about, and that is, uh, well, we, we identify as sin and the effects of sin, and that the world's not getting any better. Uh, modernism is dead, right? All that's over. So how do we? So what do we do with very obvious problems? Uh, whether it's erratic behavior that's not normal, or you know, it's atypical, we can't explain it, or even just general grief and problems with that. Well, the, what the world's answer has been is, well, the cause of all that's uh, something that's wrong in the biology, and so uh, we can fix it medically. And do you see how that completely sidestepped? any interaction or engagement at all with God. Um, is that's very that's very concerning to me as someone who is both pastorally minded but also a faithful believer. I think any Christian, when they really think about it, probably should be concerned about that. Because while we of course don't ignore at all the physical components of of of, of this life, we have to understand that all of those things uh, are tied to the spiritual, um, which if you want to talk about it and get metaphysical for a minute, which I'm sure your listeners are, are ready to do, but it's um, that's the real, real, right? The unseen world, the things that we can't see, taste, touch, measure, put into a beaker. That's the real. That's what's really real. And so, as a as a faithful pastor and believer, yeah, I'm concerned if I have a, 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 a someone in my church who has been diagnosed with cancer or is is cutting themselves. Yeah, I'm concerned because there's a risk to physical life and there's harm there and there's there's concerning compassion because those things are difficult. But as I'm seeking to, to minister to them that way, I'm also very much concerned about the state of their soul. I'm concerned about how they're thinking through and and navigating the waters of that um, unexpected diagnosis or the cancer treatments that are really impacting them badly or maybe even the emotional confusion they find themselves in. And that's, again, when we go back to the scriptures that offer a balm and a help. So I think um, to, to just uh, say that across the board, suicidal thinking is, is coming from a physical illness. First off, there's no science to support that. I think it's a claim that really can't be defended well. And also, I really don't think it's very caring if we're really going to think about people as uh, as souls, as living souls. I'm in, I'm in. Um, I want to piggyback some of that. And uh, as far as uh, Susan Condone's uh, statement, I, I think it's pure evil um, for the various reasons that you just said. It, it's pure evil because she she's trying to say that she really cares for people and really wants to prevent suicide. And everybody knows that the, the way you prevent suicide is by telling the suicidal person that, well, if you do go through with this, you're not culpable, you know, like, like it's really going to help prevent to kind of take moral responsibility away from the individual. It's actually going to encourage them to suicide. It's not going to prevent it. It's going to encourage it. Something interesting, uh, Al Mohler, you can find it. I want to say it's back in 2018, but, um, he argued, he, he said that we've got more, um, therapy than we've ever had secular therapy and the suicide rate is as high as ever. Mm. It's not working, <laughs> you know, like right. from any, any way you slice this thing, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, the mentality and what Susan is representing, um, it, it is not working. 
and yet they want to say, ref, go to the experts, go to the experts, go to the experts. And the reality is, is that these experts um, are losing people under their care where people are actually taking their own lives. Hmm. Um, and they actually have insurance to help prevent that. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, anyway, I, I just, um, it, it really bothered me when she said that because I, what I think of is like a teen who's Googling this stuff and comes across, you know, Susan Condone, who's supposedly at a Baptist institution, uh, a Christian woman speak, you know, as an authority. I don't think she should be teaching Sunday school to children. Mm-hmm. You know, like like uh, I mean, it just it is it's just I just want to be blunt um, because of how evil that mentality is. <clears throat> and imagine <clears throat> imagine telling <clears throat> a teenager that rea- that you know you <sighs> taking responsibility from is not the answer. Um, I think you you lovingly care for them and help to counsel them towards thinking rightly, which which means that they are more valuable than their heart is telling them they are. Mm-hmm. That they're that they're an image bearer. And that if in if they're in Christ, um, if they're in Christ, their sins have been taken away. The greatest problem in their life has been taken away. And they can enjoy Christ, even though they may feel forsaken, they are not forsaken because they can trust God and his promises and and so, you know, in, in ministry for over 20 years now, I, I've been counseling folks along these lines. And um, and I have seen folks come out of deep, deep, dark depression. I have seen folks come out of who were suicidal, who are no longer suicidal. And, um, you know, it, it's just it's the the whole thing is frustrating to me. But um, I think that Sam hit the hit the nail on the head, though. Um, Concerning emphasizing the power of the word and the sufficiency of the word and then kind of fighting against these wicked teachings that um, are not true uh, concerning, you know, he's talking about kind of God speaking through science or uh, probably not science through creation and science can recognize God speaking that way and can help be helpful. Um, and he says that the consensus, there's no consensus on this stuff. And I, I just love that because the way, I mean, if you're on Twitter, if you're anywhere, um, celebrity TV, anything that is public, it is, that's not, that, that message isn't put out there at all. Um, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I just wanted to, to follow up because I think probably this is a broader conversation about just the topic of mental illness and, mm-hmm. Um, what the tradition and the literature says on that. But thinking through what you guys are saying as you know, I operate in a different field. You know, I'm not an academic and I mean, Jared, you and I have overlap as pastors. I notice in the, in the, in the vein of like the more therapy we have, things are, have gotten worse um, with students dealing with what I would call common anxiety, tests, school performance, things of that nature. They, they've really never struggled. Um, and I can't remember if he's a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but Keith McCurdy is someone that I've paid attention to on the subject of raising sturdy kids. And, you know, one of the, the ideas he's brought to my mind is that even by eliminating struggle, we've created people who, who really don't know how to deal with adversity and failure and challenge other than escape. And, and when you finally get to an insurmountable challenge, you know, in whatever your limited perspective is, you said, I cannot, you know, I can't overcome this. They see it as the escape to to duck out. And as we have an increasingly therapeutic culture, I think we're going to see sort of a concurrent rise 
in those conclusions, which is unintentional, I'm sure, but nonetheless sort of a fruit of this over therapeutic uh, uh, approach to seeing the human being that, that Sam, you've been talking about and mm-hmm. Jared, you've been identifying problems with. Can we, can we transition into that broader subject then? So if, if I say the term mental illness, uh, is there a current medical consensus? I know you're saying with the DSM five that uh, they're saying, well, we don't really know for sure. Um, is there something more profitable coming out of that stream that you would point to, or is it still just kind of a, a jumble of mixed up ideas that, that, is defined by confusion. Right. So, so to help your, and some of your listeners may have a context for this, some of them maybe not. So the DSM is published by the American Psychiatric Association. A psychiatrist, a, a distinction between a, a psychologists and psychiatrists. Psychiatrists are medically trained. They are MDs. They prescribe medication. They've gone to med school. Uh, psychologists generally are not. They've gotten some other training and credentialing that way. Uh, many of them work together, but there's, there's a difference. So in many ways, as in the field of psychiatry, as a subset of, of medical practice, uh, you know, the DSM is a quote unquote medical book, but it's not at the same time. Uh, I, I would r- highly recommend to your, uh, your listeners to, to read a book by Alan Francis um, called, um, um, the name escapes me now, um, I'll have to look it up, actually. But um, Alan Francis was the task force chairman at the DSM-4, and uh, he was very involved with putting it together. And it's called Saving Normal. That's right. Uh, Alan Francis, Saving Normal. Excuse me for a moment. Uh, it's Friday afternoon. But um, so uh, in that book, uh, he's an insider. Uh, Alan Francis is one of the most powerful psychiatrists in the country. This is not some guy on the fringe by any means. And the whole point of the book is saying, listen, where do we get our our diagnoses for the DSM, which is hundreds and hundreds, and it's growing, uh, medical diagnoses. Everything now is, is, is medicalized, right? Everything is, is, is med- mental illness. So if everything's mental illness, nothing is. But where does it come from? And he says this, it's not through tests. It's not through any kind of uh, scientific objective uh, 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 you know, process, no scientific method involved. It is by committee. Psychiatrists getting together putting terms together, voting, and putting it in a large diagnostic book. It's a book used by, actually, it's, it's used more really for insurance than anything else, and, and maybe to give some labels and, and for medication purposes, but it's a diagnostic book. So that's really all that is. So if you want to talk about actual science, um, they've got a lot of problems. And if you read the, you know, most most of your, uh, you know, your listeners are, are I'm sure, and, and you and I, I mean, they have better things to do than read the DSM. But if you ever did find one and you wanted to read it for some reason, uh, read carefully and you're going to come to find that while the language is masked over in a lot of scientific jargon and medical jargon, uh, like again, with this whole definition of mental illness uh, or even mental health, that can't even be defined either uh, clearly. Uh, it's, 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 you have a lot of language like it seems to suggest and, and that type of thing. There is no actual here's what this is. And the thing is, too, psychiatry as a field has been around for 150 years. And they're really, they're, they've, as I tell this to people quite often, they have been and they continue to be a field in search of a science. Um, and so you, you see that a lot of people don't know that um, uh, because a lot of the blockbuster uh, drug companies make billions of dollars off of medicines that are linked to 
diagnoses that are put together by people who have that particular worldview. So I just, again, exercise a lot of caution behind uh, relying so heavily on that framework. I think it also goes back to what you said, both Jared and and Jeff, but you both have said already about, again, it's like a parallel track, uh, uh, a parallel rail on the same track as as our therapeutic culture. What the whole purpose of secular psychology uh, with, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of psychotherapies, hundreds. I mean, the list continues to grow. And yet they have a common, they have the common uh, uh, distinction. The common ground is the goal of psychotherapy is to assuage any type of guilt or, or problems that people are facing. And, and as Philip Reef said, we mentioned him in, in his great work uh, from the, the 60s, the, the triumph of the therapeutic. It is to eradicate any dis-ease, right? Not disease, but eradicate any dis-ease. So any discomfort, any problems that you're facing, listen, life is not for that. You need to live your best life now. You need to do all these great things. If you know, and so we have medicine for that. We have therapies for that. But the goal of life is to be happy. It's to develop a sense of personal self, identity, and self-esteem, and achievement, and and all these types of things. And so that's why when they, you know, when they see things like grief or sorrow or anything, you know, uh, any other problem of life, they automatically have to go to, it's a medical problem. It has to be addressed because, but when you read the scriptures, you don't see that. Uh, yeah, there's sinful grief. There is, there is, there, there, there are parts of that, but also you see as part of the human condition and has been since the very beginning and especially since the fall. And so we see some of those things as just natural responses, not sinful responses, natural responses to living in a fallen world and and things that sin touches. So, um, yeah, I think we're doing our children. And, and, and you think about people who are really prone to suicide. I was, I was looking at some statistics from um, uh, the, the United States government, actually, and this is from 2017, so it's a little outdated. But the second leading cause of death for 10-year-olds to 34-year-olds is suicide. Completely preventable, not heart disease, not car accidents. It is self-directed acts intended for death. And you got to ask yourself, how have we gotten to the place where that is the second leading cause of death for our youngest populations? Like, it's incredible. It's because we're hopeless. We've created a, a world in which we're full of quote unquote happiness, but we're empty, right? And if anyone can speak to this in a holistic, comprehensive, and I think substantial way, it has to be the Christian church. It has to be, because we have the word of our maker, God, right, in his word. Uh, but we're just not doing that in, in a consistent way, and we need to get back to it. We're not, again, we're not doing our children disservice when we say this life is supposed to be burdenless, right? There is no burden. There is no difficulty. No, that's just not true. And so, of course, the response is going to be when they come across that first hurdle or pitfall or whatever it may be, they're going to be completely sideswiped because they hadn't been set up for success. They've been set up to believe a lie. Hmm. Yeah, piggybacking some of what you said there, um, you know, when this pandemic, <clears throat> when it hit, um, I stopped kind of what I was preaching through and started preaching on anxiety and mainly going from um, 
going from uh, Jesus's um, prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, arguing for a um, for a distinction of arguing for a, a holy anxiety and an un- unholy anxiety, a sinful anxiety and a God glorifying anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that helped folks. It helped me to kind of wrestle with, um, you know, some of the things that are in my own heart. And uh, but it's fascinating, isn't it, that even in the scriptures that, you know, I can't imagine you think of God, the son incarnate, second person of the Trinity, united to human nature, truly human, you know, and then experiencing living in a sinful world. Um, you know, if he can be in the midst of um, fa- facing his father's wrath and um, and then I'm in him, you know, the wor- the worst thing possible that could happen to a human being is to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And, it, and if Christ can face that with a, a, a holy anxiety, um, it really frees me to not only to reject, um, not reject, but to, to rest in Christ, right? That's kind of the opposite of anxiety. Um, to rest in Christ, but it also frees me to do the same with the unholy anxiety, you know, because it, all that boils down to sin in my life. And, mm-hmm. and so Christ has taken that. I just found it very, found Christ very comforting in that. And that it's interesting. If I went to a secular, you know, they, they can't give me nothing ultimate um, that will, that anything outside of myself. Mm-hmm. Unless a pill to swallow. Well, if I can just add this in here, like what you do as a pastor and how you shepherd your flock in that way, what you're doing is, and you, we, we won't even think of it this way, but you are confronting them with the truth. And this is what secularists cannot do. And I would I even dare say those that we would call in our field integrationists, those that attempt to utilize secular systems, counseling systems, and try to be faithful, which I, I don't believe is possible in, in a biblical manner. Uh, they're handicapped because they don't confront. And if they do, they're not confronting uh, using the truth. It's with some other worldly system that, again, is worldly wisdom. And, and we know what the scriptures teach about that. But what you're doing is, and, and, and the, the great thing too, uh, Jared, is it's all done in love. Like you're helping them, you're, you're correcting wrong thinking. You're helping them to see uh, there's actually much to rejoice in. The Lord's mercies are deep and rich and unfathomable, and uh, you don't have to be hopeless. And But in order for them to see that, you've got to engage their wrong thinking, where they've gone astray, where they've not seen the Lord clearly. And that's what biblical counseling is all about. Uh, one of my mentors put it this way. It's about um, countering unbiblical thinking with biblical truth. You're listening for unbiblical thinking, and you're countering biblical truth. The, going back to um, you know Susan's statement that that again, it, it, it becomes a, a handicap in some ways. Is if we see everything as an illness, what do we have to confront? Are we saying that there's nothing that we need to confront? Well, the Bible makes it pretty clear. Like admonition, it's not just beating somebody over the head with the Bible. It's about saying, listen, remember who has the words of life. Well, it's not us. It's him. I'm reading through Second Kings right now, and it has just been amazing. My wife and I are going through that in our personal time. And it, time and time again, you know what it was that, that ultimately led the, both kingdoms to exile? They had forgotten God. And guess what? That's the same story on repeat, right, for us too. If you want to boil down all these problems, uh, 
our people have forgotten who God is. And praise the Lord, he's unchanging, right? <laughs> uh, we can go right back to, he's not changed. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's what you're doing. And that's what secular counseling cannot offer. You're right. You're exactly right. I appreciate the way your two most recent points there dovetail so nicely. So, Sam, you're saying, look, we've lost hope that basically there's a there's a nihilism to the modern worldview. And, Jared, you're saying, look to Christ, who's already suffered the worst, right? And what comes to my mind immediately is Hebrews. What is it that powers Jesus through the agony of the cross? It's the joy set before him, right? The hope of exaltation on the far side of the cross. And we've, I mean, really as a culture, we've robbed those resources from the people who are living in it, right? You you don't have any teleological purpose. Uh, that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, there's there's just a bag of genes walking around hoping to reproduce itself. And there's no real greater meaning than that. Well, stunning development. People are smart enough to put the things together and say, maybe I'll just check out on that because that story is not particularly compelling. You know, Jeff, and I'll, I'll even just say this as, you know, because I even we'll just say for the sake of argument, because because we often get this pushback from people saying, well, you know, again, you know, all you're doing is discounting, you know, all you you're just anti psychiatry. Well, let me just tell you this. I'll just add this. Even if for the sake of argument, if, even if it was all founded in science and all these things were true, guess what? It wouldn't change anything in my approach. It wouldn't mm-hmm. change one thing. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Um, nothing is going to change the fact that we are made in the image of God, that we are eternal beings that need redemption. Nothing. So I just want to lay that out there because people try to argue back. I'm so you know, first off, the field has a lot of problems. In fact, I'll just add this too. In, in the UK right now, some of the largest critics of psychiatry are psychiatrists. <laughs> Um, talk about co-belligerence. Uh, there, are, there are hundreds of books being written, hundreds, uh, from like very prestigious psychiatrists are saying our entire field is built built on a wrong approach. This thing, this, this is this has been a, a theory that's been disproven. It's never been proven. It's not going to be proven. We need to drastically change the ways that we do things. Now they would have a different solution than we would because they're lost. But see, uh, but I don't know if many people in the church are aware of that. I don't think they are. I wasn't. No, I think that's revelatory. Um, and, and gentlemen, y'all have been very generous through time. I know I can't keep you all day, although I think I could enjoy this conversation for more hours. Maybe we come down to rubber meets the road, nuts and bolts, Christianity. So two categories. The listener who's saying, look, I regularly experience suicidal uh, ideation, right? I, I think about self-harm. I think about checking out whatever it is. How do we speak to them as people who love them and love the Lord? And then also, how do we care for fellow church members in the church on this subject? So people are going to be confessing to one another. Uh, they're going to be saying, look, I'm, I'm at a breaking point. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, taking, you know, taking the suicide route out of these circumstances. How do you speak to the person experiencing it? How do you speak to the person who knows someone and wants to love someone who's experiencing suicidal thoughts? And Sam, if you would... Run with that, Jared. I'll let you go after that. Yeah. Oh, those are those are great questions, and I love that we're getting practical because the Bible is practical. <laughs> um, so, a couple of things. One is uh, I think about Ephesians two ten. This is a verse that I go to with my counselees quite often because I, I see a pretty common thread in in many of my counselees, whether or not they're dealing with suicidal ideation. And I've, I've I've worked with many that that have had that at one point or another in their life, 
Um, but again, their their wrong thinking, uh, personal sin, maybe even the the cloudiness of of the the therapeutic worldview that they're in. Uh, there are three major areas that I see that are always pretty pretty negatively impacted. It's the idea of who we are. It's the idea of what my purpose is, and it's the idea of my personal responsibility. And I think about Ephesians 2.10, it's a great verse that I have them memorize and commit to memory, and, and we think through, and it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Uh, man, that speaks to each of those three points in such a... Uh, a clear and, and I think fruitful way. And it's a great reminder to us that life has value because Christ has given us that life. Like God has given us that life. Um, he died for us to, to, to live that life. And um, I think somewhere along the way, uh, it happens to each of us, happens to me sometimes, uh, but for, especially for these people that find themselves in deep despair and grief, uh, most more often than not, they've been living for themselves for quite a, quite a while. And I think what they've seen is that they've just spent a lot of time constructing a, a castle made on sand that's fallen apart naturally, and they've, they're left with nothing. And of course, you're going to be in deep despair if you're living that way, because that's not what we were designed. That's not how we were designed to live. Um, so I, I want to, I think, first off, remind them that the purpose that we have to live for is a great purpose, and it's accessible to any of us. As long as we have breath in our lungs, uh, we've got a work to do. And, and also reminding them of just, the, again, the sanctity of human life. We always have that discussion as it relates to the unborn, and we should. Uh, that, is, that is true and right. In fact, we're expecting our third baby in June, and my, my, my wife just had her first ultrasound today, and we're just thrilled about it. It's a miracle, and it's really exciting. So, but life has value outside of the womb, too. Um, I've had counselees ranging from, uh, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds to those in their late sixties, early seventies, and um, any of us can despair of life because it's it's weary out there, guys. You know that, and I think twenty twenty has made it aware for many to many of us, if we weren't already. But uh, to any of those people, I would just say, um, you have breath in your lungs. That's a gift from the Lord. He's got work for you to do, and it's an important work. Another thing I would say is with with the thoughts that people struggle with, another passage I, I often go to, and you can go to this for just about anything, it's 2 Corinthians t- chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 6. And this talks about basically taking thoughts captive. I tell people, you are not helpless. You have been given a new heart in Christ you are not a victim. Again, this is a, a, a tragedy of this therapeutic culture that we live in, that we are just uh, uh, you know, blown by the winds of, of our troubles. It's just not true. Um, that we have the power uh, through the Spirit of God, who lives in us, by the way, and we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and through His Word, to actually take thoughts captive. But what are we taking thought, thoughts captive to? Just in the power of ourselves? Nope. Um it says that we are taking them captive to the obedience of Christ, right? These, these speculations, we are destroying strongholds, speculations, lofty things that seem to be raised up against God, right? And, and, and Jared, you spoke about this very thing. Uh, people feel, you know, they just lose sight of what Christ has done and who he is and who we are in him. And they, they think there's a big mountain when the truth is it's a molehill. And, and uh, not to make light of their worries, but to let them know uh, Christ did not die uh, to, to lead you into a, uh, a helpless existence. Um, uh, First Peter talks about this in chapter 5, that um, 
His commandments are not burdensome. He has given us the ability and the power through his spirit to obey him, and to obey him is to love him. So I think there's a lot of hope. That's just two verses. The Bible is chock full of different things to help, Mm -hmm. I think, help us get outside of ourselves. I think if, if secular therapy has taught us anything, uh, looking inside of ourselves for the answers is a terrible way to address our problems. Uh, oh, it actually leads to more hopelessness. And so, of course, you have to medicate yourself in order to to get any to get outside of just to avoid that hopelessness. But yeah, that, those are two things that I would say uh, when I'm when I'm trying to engage with people with suicidal ideations. I take them there, and I really camp out on those two things for a while. Hey Sam, would you speak for a moment just briefly about um, about the logical inconsistency of um, since you brought it up there, of telling people who supposedly have mental illness that they can fix themselves, like that 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 same brain that is evidently mentally ill, the answer is for them to go to therapy to fix their to use their mentally ill brain to fix their mentally ill brain. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, I'd love to. Um, I talk about putting someone in, a, and again, in a hopeless situation. Well, first off, therapy never claims to fix anything. Neither does medication. Um, most people who are on psychotropics uh, are not on it for. You know, you you go in and you take an antibiotic. You're on it for a particular season. It kills the a bacteria, you know, or, or an antiviral kills the virus. But uh, people who are on psychotropics are on it for life. Most of them are. Um, th- these are long-term, um, um, you know, uh, inter- interventions. And so that's that's the way it approaches. A lot of these are coping tools, if you want to think about that way, especially in, in I think, in psychotherapy. It's let, let me give you coping mechanisms. I, I tell people there's a there's a four-letter word in counseling that's a bad word that we don't say, and that's cope. <laughs> uh, the Christian life's not about coping. Uh, it's a hope. Um, we have hope in Christ. Uh, so I, I don't. I, that's that's dirty word. We don't we don't say that four letter word in my house. We don't cope. Uh, Christ has not died for me to cope. Uh, but that's the world that we're in. So uh, it, it, you know, people are, are trapped in that. And then yeah, I actually never thought about the way that you put it. But um, how tragic to to say to someone, yeah, you you are fundamentally biologically broken. Here, let's go to somewhere else to to point you to tools inside of yourself to fix your bro. It makes no sense, and and it leaves people, I think, even more helpless. And so, what do they do? They turn because that's all that's in front of them. They turn more and more to these psychiatric psychological interventions. And before long, they're even more lost than they were before. So, uh, yeah, right. We've got to. I, we tell people, and again, we, I won't get off on this, but this is something that that you know often we're biblical counselors are kind of railed against. Uh, you guys just ignore medicine. No, we don't. That's 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 foolish. Uh, no, we work well. Like we have to think about what's going on in the physical body. But in that way, we are we know that our ultimate hope is not in the physical. It can it cannot be. All of us are going to die. Uh, one one day or another, unless the Lord Jesus comes back, right? Um, in our in our lifetimes, but um, we've got to be concerned about the spiritual, and the spiritual is the realm, always the realm of of pastors of the church. It just it just it it is. Uh, um, Christ redeems our souls, our bodies belong to Him. He, we are holistically His. So, uh, yeah, turning just to a secularist for real heart issues, real life issues. And instead of going to a pastor and going to the Word, I, I think is is problematic. Yeah, it's troubling. Well, gentlemen, I'll, I'll let y'all scrutinize me, and maybe this is how we can go out. Um, when I think through caring for someone in those circumstances, 
the diagnostic categories I'm looking through are dignity. Like, does this person understand that they're made in the image of God, that that carries a dignity that can't be easily cast aside? Um, I want to talk to them about stewardship, that the creator who made them in his image uh, has expectations of them that they will be held accountable for. Uh, You know, whatever choice they make, there's still the accountability is unshakable. So we want to think about stewardship. Uh, We want to think about agency, kind of what you were saying, Sam, that the Lord has placed you in these circumstances by sovereign choice. And therefore, he has a purpose for you to fulfill in that. And then also what you said about hope, that there's this eschatological hope that that these things count for eternity and that they will matter into eternity. Uh, I think, you know, in some ways you don't have to go to the Christian faith for this, although that's the richest version. But when somebody introduced me to Viktor Frankl years ago, talking about who made it through the Holocaust uh, in the camp he was in, and it's those who maintained hope that that's something you want to set in front of people. So, again, uh, dignity, um, stewardship. Agency, hope. Um, is that a helpful paradigm? Or would you guys say, hey, you're missing something obvious? What would you say to that? If we're trying to help people think through how to care for others who might be thinking of harming themselves. I mean, no, I mean, a lot of a lot of the counsel I provide is very much oriented around that. And, and I know what you're, you're saying about that. But, you know, again, even so, there are other models. Victor is an example. Um, um, oh, Hobart Maurer was another one who had a therapy back in the 70s. Actually, he uh, Jay Adams worked with him for a very brief season, uh, but it called integrity therapy where they saw. OK, so the ways that we approach people, uh, we don't need to approach them just biologically. We need to think about like morality, uh, but they, they also weren't believers. So the morality was always missing something. So I guess uh, not, not, not to say there was caution, anything that you're saying, you, you're a Christian pastor. So I know where you're coming from when you talk about integrity and all those types of things, it would just make that abundantly explicit. Um, again, I think about our, my brothers and sisters that are, are faithful believers, but they're trying to counsel in a mixed context to where they're maybe licensed by the state and they're operating outside of the realm of the church. Um, this is a, a big, I think, a big area that's a stumbling block and an area of major, should be a mere area of major concern for them because uh, they're working under dual jurisdictions. They have to, they're trying to be faithful to the Word of God, but they can't fully be, not truly, if they're going to work under a jurisdiction that held ethical standards that is a secular uh, um, realm. And so, you know, they may use, you know, you know, when you're talking to one of your sheep who hears you preach the gospel week in and week out and knows the word, you can use those terms and they know what you mean. A lot of people out there don't because we live, even though we live in a pretty secular society, we still have a lot of quote unquote Christians out there. I mean, we, we, you know, so everyone's a Christian, right? I'm a Christian. Okay. Uh, you, you know, you, you don't you don't confess Christ. You don't believe he's even historically real. So, no, you're not a Christian. So they hear those things and they form their own ideas of what dignity mean. Well, I don't I want them to understand their dignity and value comes from God. It doesn't come from their sense of self. And so there's some of that. And a lot of that will depend on who your counsel is, what background they're coming from. I find that a lot of uh, 99% this is a real statistic. Okay, I'm giving you real science here. 99% of the counselees I work with um, need uh, they are biblically illiterate. And a lot of these are faithful church-going people. But when we have when we go in the scriptures, they've never they they or if they have read it, they've never really they've never been challenged to think, how does this apply to me today? And so a lot of what I do is very fundamental discipleship. Um, 
And not, not, not to make light of that, it just is. And so they've never, they never thought about theological implications behind their suicidal thinking. They never thought, and actually that's the problem. They never thought, what does God think about the fact that I'm really considering taking my own life? And, and not to mention all the implications of that on other people in their lives. Uh, they haven't. They've be- because, in part, they've, they've become so self-focused. So I think when I would think about some of those things, yes, you're exactly right. Um, uh, I, I didn't get to this question of yours. I, I'll, I'll jump on this real quick because I don't want to ignore it, and I'm sure Jerry could speak to some of this more. But again, some of the practicalities. When I think about actually engaging someone who's talked about suicidal thinking, um, th- there's— uh, I want to do some triage at the very beginning because there are two different types of this you're going to get. In, uh, and I've, I've experienced this. You're going to have what's going to be considered more crisis situations. Uh, maybe someone who's saying, I'm in a position right now where I've thought a lot about it and I'm ready to do it. And they've got means, mode, and opportunity to do it. The way that you're going to engage with them in that moment, it's going to be very different than maybe someone who's, you know, I've, I've thought about it maybe seriously, but they're in your office, they're seeking you out, they're not, you know, they're not holding a gun to their head, if, you know, if I can put it bluntly. And, and, I, and I, I've not had that. I know uh, biblical counselors who have had situations like that. You're talking to someone who's on the phone with you, they've got a gun to their head, they're ready to do that now. You need to go, I mean, you need to go make it immediate and clear. Listen, we, you know, this is a crisis situation, right? So we want you to put the gun down. We're talking about the value of life in those very just clear ways. And also saying, I want to do whatever I can. You know, do I need to call the local authorities to get in there? We just want to make any barrier that we can get between the opportunity for harm in that person. We need to do that because we're concerned about their physical safety. I'm not taking that moment to sit. Let's talk about the implications behind your bad theology, right? Now. I, yeah, I'm concerned about that. I don't want them to shoot themselves. So sure. you know, that's kind of a crisis situation. That's crisis counseling. So obviously, your your practical engagement is going to be very different depending on on kind of where your counselor is in that moment. But ultimately, you know, get them out of that situation prayerfully. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna circle back around and show them, you know, where did all this come from? What led you? You to where you're you're coming from, and and so we're gonna we're gonna hit some of those things. And Jared, you might be able to speak to some of that. Um, um so much there. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I think something I was just gonna say, but regarding um, actually counseling with them, um, we want to just. You know, we want to, you know, like I said, engage them quickly, making sure that there's nothing that they'll do to harm themselves. But, but in, anyway, someone who's struggling with that and they're saying they have it, I always take those seriously. It's easy to, to maybe for a young teenager or someone who's maybe just generally a moody person to, to put it off. I, I always take those very seriously, and I want to let them know that I, they do. Uh, one practical question you can ask somebody that we, that I, I've done before is. Um, Okay, you, so you told me that you're considering suicide. Have you thought about the means and mode and opportunity? Uh, do you have a plan? Uh, that's a great question to ask to really get to, I think, in a quick manner, the heart of what's really going on. Uh, if they can tell you, yeah, like my plan was to drive my car into my garage and to shut the garage and I can do that. I've got access to my car. Uh, that needs to kind of raise the threat level, if you will, in your mind about, OK, this could actually happen. A few weeks ago, my wife got a phone call from a young lady uh, in our church who uh, said she had suicidal thinking 
And that was one of the questions my my wife asked her. And she said, yeah, you know, here's what I was thinking. And she had all of those things accessible. So what did we do? And this was like a 930, 10 o'clock at night type of thing. Well, this girl had some roommates. We got on the phone with those other roommates and we said, with, and we said, here's what we're going to do. You put them on the phone. Uh, you guys are going to put up a watch tonight. She's not going to be in her room. And then tomorrow we're going to get a plan to get her home to her mom and dad. And we'll, we'll, let's handle the crisis situation, get you in a safe place. And then we can address some of these things. And we were able to do that. Praise God. And she was safe and, and that's fine. So you got to, you got to think about some of those things. Um, and it's not that you, it's not that you're putting off the deep things, but we've got to make sure personal safety is, is, you know, considered, right? Oh yeah. Amen. And, um, so I try to discern and counseling folks like that. I try to discern, um, you know, when they when they think about it most. Like, what are the circumstances that kind of trigger um, those thoughts? Or a, I don't know if it, I don't know what the correct term is, Sam. But uh, um, it's not muscle memory. It may be brain memory or whatever. Where you know, kind of fight or flight type thing. That mm-hmm. that reaction. And, and then uh, it's suicide instead of fighting or flighting. Suicidal thought springs forth. I assume it's just the flesh. Um, but you eventually train your brain to go there, you know, to, to where it becomes the kind of default of the brain. And so you have to retrain that muscle memory through holy thinking, through holy habits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Philippians 4.8 uh, where we're to think on all that is good, true. And it's interesting in that uh, exegeting that verse, um, well, that passage really, um, some of the language there that Paul is using is actually taken from the kind of the surrounding culture where he's making a uh, not just a what is good, true, and beautiful type concerning the word special revelation, but in all of God's creation, anything that is praiseworthy. Like, uh, so when I'm counseling folks, um, I ask them what their pop culture choices is. You know, are they, are they, are they listening to corn all the time and listening to like, like, so they're 40. Yeah, yeah, for real. <laughs> but I mean, are, what what are they into? The dark uh, anime? Are they into sure. like? And I'm trying What's to figure into out into the mind, the heart, and the conscience. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get through all all those things and figure out and to emphasize the design of God. You know how God has designed yeah. them, and then you know how he uh, what what they've got to what they need to be focusing on and it, and I I don't say that those things are inherently sinful but it might you may need to until you retrain your brain you may not need to participate in these shows or these this music or these things for a certain time period um as you as you get stronger and Detoxify. and then you ask them about yeah you yeah yeah you ask them about their friends you ask them about who they're associating with and and uh, the list goes on and on, but mm-hmm. it is really a long discipleship process. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll meet with them every week until you know they seem to be gaining some strength, and and um and then we'll go to two weeks, you know, once every two weeks, and then slowly until we eventually get to where we don't meet, where it's just a phone call checking, and kind of try to keep tabs tabs on them. Um, but um. But I, I think it, if I could emphasize anything, it would be God's design. You know, if I could just one 
one thing would be going back to the garden. You know, do these people believe that God created them and created the world, the cosmos? And um, you can't kick against the goats. You can't go against how God has designed you um, or how God has prescribed human flourishing mm-hmm. in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if you want to flourish as a human being, you've get, you've got to know and apply the word. That's right. And um you know, and, and so so anyways, um, but if I could emphasize one thing, it, it really is kind of an apologetic type thing. You know, counseling and apologetics are kind of uh, hand in hand. Um, you know, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said if he had an hour on a plane with someone, he would um, he would spend like 55 minutes uh, trying to convince them that God created everything. And then he would spend the last five minutes sharing the gospel. Um, because, you know, if God created everything, oh, yeah. then he has ownership of everything and uh, he defines its purpose. He defines. And so I, I just thought I think that's a helpful point. And it's the same way with counseling. Like mm-hmm. your feelings do not define you, your choices and your desires like God defines you mm-hmm. and you can't kick against that. And if you do, you're going to be miserable. <laughs> you yeah. Well, you know, you're right. And I, I think along with that, too, like part of again, part of the, the the manifestation of this this new psychologized man, this new therapeutic culture that we find ourselves in, we've compartmentalized that. So so there's the spiritual over here. But here's my problems. And those two those are two different things and they don't overlap. And that's just simply not true. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing in this life that God does not inform and that our view of God does not impact and 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 stuff like that. So, yeah, you're I, I mean, I think you're spot on. That's exactly. So I never thought about it as, as as an apologetic, but that's that's what it is. It's discipleship. It's all of those types of things, and um, I think you can, you know. So there, and there is room too with uh, with even people in the, in that tender. And I think there's a misnomer with saying that, uh, and even secular teaching says this. A lot of training on on, on working with suicidal people that, uh, oh, well, we, you know, if they're they're in a fragile state, I can't engage with them. That's just not true. Uh, many of them want you to engage with them. A lot of people are lonely. They have no relationships or connections. And so um, by doing that, and again, in, in a caring but direct way, you're showing them that they're cared for, that you care, and and uh, that you don't want to see them do this thing. So, I mean, I think that's important. Oh, yeah, and I, I try to emphasize community. Like, do what are their familial relationships? How involved are they in the local church? Are they coming to the various, you know, Sunday school, worship every time the doors are open? What about this Bible study, home Bible study? Are they going to all these things? And I have found, in more cases than not, um, it's going to sound bad, but if I can get those folks outside of themselves focused on other things from the time they get up to the time they go to bed, in most cases— when they realize that they're the t- the two greatest commandments, where it's God and others. That's, that's right. You know, and not me, I, right? There's, it doesn't say, I love that too. It's not God and others, and then, but but numero uno is, which, yeah. you know, it's not about that. Yeah. Right, right. And if I can get them focused on God and others, yeah. it's amazing how it's they amazing. flourish. That's right. It really is. Because that's God's same way design. with me. Yeah. Same way with me. I assume you guys, I mean, you guys, that's something else like that folks, I mean, if I if I just focus on me all the time, I'm not going to, you know, it, it's going to be, it's a miserable existence, just honestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Living for the finite is not what we're made to do, right? We're, we're to right. live for the ultimate. So, listeners, I hate to do this. I'm going to have to cut this off because these gentlemen have other things to give their time to. But this has been fascinating. It's been super helpful. Uh, Samuel Stevens, we're so thankful for your time. Uh, listener. Yeah. I want to be real clear. 
uh, we've talked about assuming that the Bible is understandable and relevant to the counseling task, both for the individual and others. Uh, I don't mean to imply, though, that you can't get better at it. And if you're listening to this and saying, man, I want I want people to help me get better at this. Uh, Samuel Stevens is your guy. The Association of Certified Biblical Counselors is your group. Uh, throw that in your Google machine. Um, the podcast that uh, Samuel mentioned to us, Truth and Love. I'm a regular subscriber and listener. It's an amazing resource that you can just sort of take as a regular drip of goodness into your life to build your understanding. They've got further counseling uh, training mechanisms. So mm-hmm. get familiar. If you're not already, get familiar with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And uh, Sam, I want to do all that. So you, you said earlier you're hesitant to like shamelessly plug. I want ACBC <laughs> shamelessly plug. So yeah, no. tell us more that I left out there. No, I, that was brother. Thank you so much for that. And actually, the, the timing is really great. We just launched a brand new website. Uh, it was a labor of love for the last couple of years, but brand new. And we've got hundreds and hundreds of resources that cover just about every topic you could imagine at biblicalcounseling.com. And that's hmm. where you can go and look for those resources, podcasts. Um, Jeff mentioned podcasts, our Truth and Love podcast. And um, uh, we've got some video and audio samples. We've got a lot of, you can purchase a lot of material as well from past conferences that we have. Uh, I would say, too, for for your listeners, especially pastors that are listening, um, when you go to our website, check out our 2021 annual conference. We do a conference every year. This year, it's going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it's about developing a culture of care in your church. And I think it's going to be one of the most important, I think, just a very timely topic for where we are right now. Um, But you're going to get, at our our annual conferences, we have... um, uh, six plenary sessions. Kevin DeYoung is going to be one of our plenary speakers this year, um, a really great speaker, uh, along with our uh, several other great ones. And then we have over 50 breakout sessions that cover topics just like this. Uh, we have people that come from all over the country, all over the world, and um, we're about equipping saints to be, again, competent counselors in their churches. And uh, I want to see the church reclaim that role. Um, we are hospitals for the hurting. And if, if, our, if our people can't come to us, where can they go? Uh, we need to, so ACBC is committed to uh, not not having to send our people out anymore, and they can come in and get true, uh, competent, uh, quality uh, soul care right there uh, from pastors and other people that love them. So uh, I'm going to have to come back, Jeff. You're going to have to have me back. we got some other topics to discuss. <laughs> Man, I have so much in my mind that I want to. And <laughs> I, again, this has been a treasure for me. I, also, listener, I'll just tell you, I, in the last couple of weeks, I went and got resources from the biblical counseling website that were particular to resources I was, uh, sorry, counseling needs I had in my own ministry. And I was on uh, biblicalcounseling.org. Is, did I get the address right there, Sam? Uh, dot com. Dot com. Just this week, looking for a biblical counselor that was certified by ACBC uh, to refer to some friends. And so... If you're if you're listening to this and say, man, I want to meet with somebody in person who has this kind of training, get on the website, uh, put your zip code in. They're going to show you who's near to you and how to get in touch with them. And it's stuff I use regularly in my own ministry. So these people awesome. are for the church as Midwestern Seminary, yes. Midwestern Baptist Seminary has led so well on. And you guys are going to profit from their work. So make sure you're familiar and checking them out regularly. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I looked into being getting certified, actually emailed Sam earlier this week and he said uh, or where I went on the website it said 
uh, two to four years, and it was the cost was roughly thirteen hundred dollars, if I'm not mistaken. And so you think about that. I mean, if you stretch that out over a couple of years, six hundred fifty dollars a year is not. Uh, that is not a huge expense. And, and I know there might be some more, you know, there might be more things in there, but it, it, with what you're going to get, it's definitely worth the effort, worth the time and worth the money, um, how it will benefit your church. And um, Sam, you I got to neighbor just, better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one question, something I've been doing on Sunday nights is going through how people change. Is yeah. that a resource that you recommend? Yeah. Um, is that the, um, Paul Tripp. And, Paul Tripp, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great one, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really, we found it really good, really helpful. It kind of... Another, just, and one that we're actually, so our church is uh, also going through a resource by Ed Welch um, and, uh, called Side by Side. Uh, that's his, That's the larger book. There's also a, a mini book called Caring for Others, and it's the same idea. Um, it actually talks about, and, and so uh, this is what our conference is going to talk about in 2021, but the idea of um, what does intentional biblical caring look like and well it's it is it is soul care it's biblical counseling and so we've just got to again reclaim that term and and think about you know what are all the many many different creative ways that we can be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in our churches as they walk through difficulties in life um the church is not a place for quasi relationships the church is a family, and and but we need to re, we need to rethink the way that we most of us have been in, in interacting with church. I don't know if you guys have watched um, the uh, that documentary on Netflix called the Ameri- American Gospel. I don't know if you've heard about that or not, but I just watched it a few uh, last week with my wife, and it just blew me away that this is the way that most people, when they think about not just the gospel but the American church, we're so into entertainment, and we're so into, again, feeling good. Again, that therapeutic pops up again. Uh, we're missing the point of what the church is for. So uh, it needs to be a place of true healing, not just emotional wellness uh, and all that type of stuff. I mean, mm. God's concerned about that, but he's more concerned about our holiness. So yeah, I, I think that that's a great book. And then side by side, I would highly recommend, along with a uh, companion volume, uh, Caring for Others by Ed Welch, uh, both out of CCEF. It's a great resource. Mm. All right. Well, that's probably the best note we could end on there. Listener, if you've heard a bunch of resources coming to you through the course of this podcast or even just now, uh, I'm going to put those in the show notes. So there will be links to all these things we've talked about, starting with the ACBC website down to Side by Side by Ed Welch and How People Change by Trip. Uh, so don't be don't don't feel like you got to pause and get a sketch pad. We'll put it in the show notes for you. Uh, Jared, Sam, thank you all so much for being here. This has been a blessing yep. and we would love to have you back sometime, Sam. We're going to have to do it, guys. We're going to have to do it. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for having me. We're going to move on now to a different approach to the topic of suicide with a review of the 2006 documentary, The Bridge. All right, Jared. So we are going to review the documentary from 2006 called The Bridge. And this is a Really interesting documentary. It was a British filmmaker who trained cameras for a prolonged period of time on the Golden Gate Bridge, which uh, is, I guess, the number one most popular suicide destination. And so what they did is captured these, uh, I mean, it's just really moving footage of these people coming to the end of their life by their own choice. They would then go interview people who knew the, the people who had leapt to their death and kind of splice it all together into a narrative. And so, uh, it's a heavy, heavy film. Um, 
I'm going to read the IMB summary, IMDB summary, excuse me, and then we'll just talk about conscience issues and go from there. How's that sound? Sounds good, man. All right. So the IMB, man, I can't, I'm too Southern Baptist. The IMDB summary says, filmmakers use hidden cameras to capture the various suicide attempts at the Golden Gate Bridge, the world's most popular suicide destination. Interviews with the victim's loved ones describe their lives and mental health. Uh, the movie's made by Eric Steele, and he's kind of a center of controversy, which we'll talk about a little bit more. But before we get to that point, uh, what conscience issues should Christians think through if they think about watching this movie? Yeah, it's some, uh, I mean, there's a little language. And uh, and then, I mean, you're you're wrestling with, it actually shows some people who pass away. Um, shows some folks hitting the water. And uh, and just whether or not Christians should watch something like that where someone actually passes away. Um, and, uh, you know, Jeff, talk about that, man. I know you, you read more about that. Yeah, I think there's a real ethical issue there. Um, I, I think some some high-level principles we would have to affirm is that being entertained by death is beneath Christian dignity, right? And so right, right. Uh, we... <sighs> I, I would encourage a Christian who who has a has an interest in like what does it look like to watch someone choose to commit suicide. I would caution you not to watch this. Uh, I don't think that would be a helpful way to go into watching this film. Um, I think I know this because we did some of this back in the day, but I was guilty of this sin. And I think not to throw you under the bus, but you joined me. We watched those Faces of Death videos that were yeah. Um, I mean, you could get them at video rental stores. I wish I could, I wish I could go back and take those decisions away. Um, I know that oh, there, yeah. there are places out there that are called like watch people die. So this stuff is still out there and, uh, it's a wicked thing. I think I stepped on you there, but just sort of assuming that watching someone die for, uh, for entertainment's sake is a wicked thing. We want to be clear about what would you say in addition to that, Jared? No, I mean, I, I agree. I think you're right. Um, an image bearer dying is not something that should entertain us. It should be something you lament. Um, I think even, I mean, it's helpful to think about it, not even dying, but someone getting hurt, like when you're watching a football game. As much as you despise the other team, it's still an image bearer that is injured. And, you you know, like I remember Matt Castle, um, it was, I think it was the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, few years ago, he was a backup quarterback and got in the game and got injured. And the, the fans, his own fans started cheering when he got injured. And they interviewed an offensive lineman, his offensive lineman after the game. And he went nuts on the fans. He said, this is not the Roman Coliseum. You know, yeah. I mean, these are real guys. And if you want to boo me, boo me, but don't boo the quarterback who just gave his best and got injured, you know. And um, I think it's kind of that same concept. And if you're watching a UFC fight, somebody getting knocked out, um, you know, you want you do not want that person to you want them to suffer as little injury as possible. You know, you don't want to you want you don't want someone getting arm broke or anything like that. And so uh, I guess it's just a thirst for violence which is not, it wasn't in the garden and it's not going to be in the new heavens and new earth, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, it's a catchphrase to talk about the culture of death, but we really do live in a culture of death where death is, uh, we're sort of schizophrenic, right? We want to pretend like nobody actually has to die, that we can stay young and healthy forever. But also uh, we try to sort of actualize our best lives now by putting people to death. If it's 
somebody who's inconvenient to me, an unwanted pregnancy, or you know, a, an older person, uh, or even my own sickness. I'll just I'll just make the choice to check out. And so I think this is one of those symptoms of living in a culture of death, and uh, mm-hmm. it it's a danger to us. It's dehumanizing to treat death, even injury, but death uh, as something that. Uh, we shouldn't see as a big deal. Like you said, it's an image bear and that should jar us. You know, there, there's never a time when creation really is more wrong than when an image bear dies. It's a product of the fall, right? I mean, the only mm-hmm. thing more heinous is when the, the living son of God dies on a cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, we, I mean, I do want to stake, I do want to stake at least that level of clarity that we don't come to death for entertainment. And, and to be honest with you, something that I have, Learn to appreciate as someone living in the deep south in a very rural environment. It used to annoy me when I would be driving down the road and coming in the other direction would be a string of cars with their lights on led by a hearse and maybe a, you know, a sheriff's patrol because I knew my day was going to be inconvenienced. I would need to pull over to be polite, let the mourners and the body pass me by to get to the cemetery or wherever they're going. And I found myself one day sort of seeing a uh, a line of those cars on a parallel road and trying to hustle down and get onto this other road where I could, in good conscience, just kind of blow past and keep going on my trip without stopping for them, uh, you know, and, and, and letting them go by. And I realized that it's a good thing that remains in my community that people stop and acknowledge an image bearer has died. It, you know, it's not going to control your schedule, you may not know them, but we are going to take a moment and assume people will say something significant happened here. And mm-hmm. so I, I've I've learned to embrace pulling over when I when I see the funeral line of cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's got to be Judeo-Christian influence, you know? Yeah. That, uh, I mean, even, even how our cemeteries are aimed toward um, the East, you know, with a, as far as the, mm-hmm. you know, to where you can sit up and um, you know, we're, we're assuming he's returning. Yeah. I, I had a friend tell me one time when he started studying American church history, that one of the reasons churches built graveyards right next to their building. And I'm sure this carries over from English history too. I don't think it's unique to us, but the church wanted to be very aware that part of the church was outside waiting resurrection. Part of the church was inside awaiting, you know, Jesus tarried their own death and then resurrection, but together they would be united again in the, in the return of Christ. and. Those are good things that we still have at least echoes of around here. I'm thankful for them. Amen, man. And I, I think it was also a statement against the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to actually bury folks who, mm. you know, who did commit suicide or who, you know what I'm saying? Like they're going to bury um, folks who committed, is it venial sin? I, I get what you're saying. Mortal. Uh, yeah, it's mortal. mortal. Venial is the is the kind that I think has some sort of hope attached to it, but mortal sin is... Um, casting out, yeah, and how, how they handled the the dead was a was a well it was Protestant. Mm-hmm. It was a protest against uh, Roman Catholicism and their views, yeah. purgatory and all that. Um, but but anyways, um, so th- those are some conscience warnings, just language, and then dealing with some heavy stuff. And you do see, so that you may want to look away a few times. Basically, Jeff and I, I when I watched it, I didn't realize. What was happening? It's just somebody landing in the water. There's no gore or anything. Um, but I didn't realize what I was watching. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, I didn't expect um, to actually see folks um, taking their own lives. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff is up close and personal. And there's 
there's one individual who kind of is the the framing narrative, the framing device for the whole documentary, and you you get a lot of time with him walking around on the on the bridge. It's it's challenging. I mean, even something that I I was struck by in the movie that people who are considering watching this might want to know. Every now and then, you'll just get a long view shot of the bridge, you know, pulled way back, and you'll see a splash. And what that splash tells you is somebody has leapt to their death again. And so, I mean, it's a it's a demanding it's a demanding movie, and uh, I don't think people should should traipse into it lightheartedly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think that raises just the question: um, Is it ethical to make a movie like this and invite people to? To watch it. I mean, should Christians watch a movie like this? I, I think they should have cut away right yeah. before they hit the hit the water. Um, because there's no there's literally what is the purpose of you know what I'm saying? Like you do you want to show people this actual person dying? You know, right. like what's the there was no reason and they obviously cut out several things. Like they had tons of footage because it was there for a year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I just I wish they had cut away from it, but you can avert your eyes, and I don't think it's inherently sinful to see it, but it is. We should not delight in it or anything. It it should bring us sorrow. It, it brought me sorrow. Like I can't believe you know. Like yeah. it's so awful. It's yeah. so awful that these folks would do that. And um, but yeah, I I think he I think it is sinful to um to make light. And I don't know how else to do it. I don't know what the motivation would be to show someone hitting the water um, or going into the water. Yeah. Um, you know, like you, you don't have to show it. Um, so I, I think that it is a I don't know the name of the fellow who made it, but um, I think he did air there. I would say sin. I think he did sin there. Yeah. His name's Eric Steele. And I mean, it's this is a ethically controversial documentary. Um, Steele didn't tell the city what he was actually filming for. He he told he he got to set his cameras up by telling the city he was there to do a nature documentary. Wow. And um he also would interview the survivors loved ones. Sorry, not the survivors loved ones. That those who committed suicide, he would interview their loved ones and he didn't always disclose that he had footage of their loved one leaping to their death. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, the other That's side not- of this is that he said, look, we trained our people to prevent suicides when we could. We only used, uh, you know, if we it, we didn't neglect anyone so that we could get their footage of their suicide. In fact, they said, I think they prevented like 16 people from getting on the bridge to jump. And so I don't think he went in like ethically cold hearted. Mm-hmm. But this is uh, there's a lot of ethical challenges, even with making this movie. Mm. And really, the the footage of the people kind of pacing the bridge, looking to leap, all that is there to kind of add gravity to to what I think the movie does offer a Christian that is profitable, which is the interviews with the people left behind, uh, and then also with that one that one kid who was a survivor, you know, kind of seeing what they went through, knowing something of their story, adds gravitas to these interviews in a visual medium. Now, like you said, look away from everything that that should be looked away from. But the the good in this film, I think, is found in the interviews with those who who remain. Mm-hmm. That that's the profitable front. So if you're looking for, well, what's a profitable reason to watch this documentary? It's to to have suicide framed by those who survived the attempt or those who 
uh, are left behind by those who successfully ended their life. Mm-hmm. So on that front, Jerry, would you say this movie helps us better understand suicide? I don't think it helps us understand suicide at all. I think it helps us um, understand the giant hole that uh, the person who commits suicide leaves in the lives of those around them. Mm. Um, I mean, it, I mean, at a base level, it helps us understand that suicide is the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Because um, each person that ended their lives, that's what they were pursuing. Right. At least at least in this video, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've probably came to that concept in Blaise Pascal through John Piper's Desiring God. But, you know, Pascal has that quote that everyone moves towards happiness, even the person who goes to the gallows. Hmm. And... um and that, yeah, I mean, I do think this documentary sets that right in front of us, that this is this is an attempt to find happiness. It can be a morbid kind of happiness, right? Like getting away from this thing that has frustrated me or hurt me or caused me pain. But mm-hmm. everybody thinks this is the this is the way to get better circumstances than what they're experiencing. And uh, that, that's such a tragic and heartbreaking uh, delusion to, to find yourself under. It is because... I mean, even if you long for something, let's say you long for something for years, uh, you know, the pursuit of happiness changes. I mean, folks, folks in the nursing home want to be healthy enough to go back home. Yeah. Folks who are healthy enough to stay home want to be healthy enough to work. And folks who want to be healthy enough to work want a better job. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just it's a discontentment and it's a trap and something that, you know, Christ, Christ alone can satisfy. And um, that he is the one we ultimately long for. And then until we um, seek God's glory in all that we do, we're going to we're going to be lacking. Um, And I I mean, the most fascinating thing is the fellow that um, as soon as he got in the air after jumping off the bridge, he realized he didn't want to die. Yeah. You know, and, and I assume a lot of folks realize that, but it's too late. You know, you're in the air. And um, and so he actually tried to prevent himself from dying and he survived. And uh, I just that is so I mean, how quickly the mind changes, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, so this documentary was in part inspired by a previous article in the New Yorker magazine called Jumpers. So the documentary comes out in 2006. The article in the magazine comes out in 2003. Um, the guy who wrote the article for the New Yorker wrote that survivors often report that they regret their decisions in midair. Oh, my goodness. And it it dovetails incredibly well with the survivor in this uh, in this one where he says, I realized that everything in my life that I thought was unfixable was actually fixable, except for the reality I have just jumped to try to end my life. You know? Oh, my goodness, man. That is perfect. I mean, that's a perfect statement, you know, because yeah. I mean, that that's what I I, I want to tell folks who are considering. Um, that's one of the things I want to tell them is, is wait. You know, you can always <laughs> do something later. Just wait because it, it, it's just don't do it at all. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you don't know what the future holds. The thing that you're, you know, messing with or the thing that you're worried about or whatever reason that is encouraging you to do to do this now it may change down the road. Yeah. There there might be so much beauty in your future. I mean, it's just, uh, just from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, like just wait. But, well, and you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you've got that one gentleman uh, who successfully committed suicide. 
His name was Gene. And we see Gene at the beginning and the middle and the end of the documentary. And we get a lot of time with these people who really cared about Gene. You know, he lived with this one couple. He had a good friend who, uh, you know, had, had obviously walked through difficulty in Gene's circumstances. And uh, every one of them basically said, like, this didn't this didn't have to be how this played out. Uh, you know, Gene was frustrated about not having a job he wanted. But they said, you know, the, the couple he was living with said that the day he killed himself, they came home to a recording on their telephone answering system that uh, someone was offering him a job that was the job he wanted. And, uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it, I mean, the, the movie crazy. does a good job of driving on the point you just made that time, just give it more time. Yeah, I don't I don't know about you, man, but when I was a teenager, you know, I considered suicide, thought about suicide and, um, you know, just stupid emotion, teenager stuff. Um, but I can't I mean, looking at my life now, 20, you know, 25 years later and looking at uh, my wife, my kids, my church, all the people I've got to love and meet and who've loved me. And it's just it's ludicrous, you know. Um, and there's so many, you know, we we hear of and we have friends that have taken their lives that and you're like, man, I wish I could have talked to him or her. You know, I wish I could have convinced them to wait um, because one, the Lord heals. And um, and not only that, but I mean, he he's worth fighting for. He's worth Jesus is worth fighting these desires that are contrary to God. You know, yeah, it, he's worth the fight. And um these folks, everyone in this video that were wanting to take their lives, it seemed that they they would only they were only gonna continue living if whatever they wanted fixed was fixed. And what's one beautiful thing about the gospel is that even if Christ doesn't give me what I want, he has given me himself. Yeah. And he he is enough. He's enough for eternity. And so he's literally given me something that no one can take from me. Um, that I can't take from me, that nothing that happens to me in this life can take from me. And so I have something that endures, uh, endures with me even when I'm a, a scoundrel, you know? I mean, it's just, there's nothing more beautiful than the gospel. And um, man, people are longing for him, but they're running to all these other things, these other idols that can't satisfy what they desperately need, which is Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you're getting really to the crux there, right? When it comes to human life, we didn't, uh, create ourselves. We didn't give ourselves life, and so therefore we don't have freedom to take what was not ours. Right? We right. We have received lives as stewardship gifts, and we have to make a profitable return on them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's inappropriate for us as people who are not self originating uh, to to throw away these gifts we've been given and expected to make a return on. And then you know it, it really does come down to a kind of idolatry. That mm -hmm. my happiness in my relationships, my happiness in the way my life is going, my sense of being overwhelmed or not, uh, ultimately becomes an idol that is bigger than the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who gave me my life and who expects me to return it to him for his glory. Uh, you mentioned, you know, teenager stuff. Um, I think there's a reason biochemically, uh, but also societally, that teenagers seem to have a preponderance of suicidal ideation. Um, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean those things aren't powerfully felt and they aren't powerfully uh, painful. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the thing we would come back to is to say they've got to be interpreted in light of who Jesus Christ is 
uh, what he expects of us with this life that he's given us and for Christians that he's also redeemed. Um, and then with, with this view that the Lord does not put us in circumstances that are inappropriate for us in the sense that like he chose when you were born, he chose where you were to live. He, he, he knew and he was sovereign over those things. And so you're not abandoned. You're not abandoned mm. to the difficulties that feel overwhelming. You're strategically positioned there and there's a good available to you. It may, it may hurt. Your circumstances may hurt. You may have to fight really hard to see what the Lord wants you to do there, or what he has for you. But objectively, Christ is Lord and therefore there is good for you available. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I mean, and I, I want to say that to like even, even aware that uh, people died in concentration camps in history, right? I mean, uh-huh. I'm not trying to be flippant that we're all going to step into Mr. Rogers' neighborhood if we give it a little while, but we're called to be faithful in this life in light of eternity. And so one of the things to check suicidal ideation against is the Lordship of Christ and his glory uh-huh. and the goodness of knowing him. And so anybody listening, a teenager or elsewise who's thinking, ah, man, it's just too difficult. I just, I want to remind you, you have a stewardship that you're going to be held accountable for. And the idols of your comfort and satisfaction are not ever going to satisfy you. But mm-hmm. honoring Christ and knowing him and loving him actually will. Mm-hmm. And then for me, man, it was similar to the prodigal son um, who didn't realize how good he had it in his father's house, mm. or at least how loving his father was until he got with the pigs and wanted to eat what they were eating. And, um, you know, that's something else is that when you're brought that low, the Lord may permit you to get that low precisely so that you will realize how sufficient he is, you know, sure. um, to send you running to him. It was around that time that I was saved uh, when I was 17 and uh, saved by Christ and uh, understood his grace, understood that my works couldn't um, couldn't save me. And um, I found great freedom in the Lord, not only to not only to. Um, to live for him and knowing that I'm going to fail, but that his grace sustains me, but also to, it freed me to um, value myself because Christ was in me, Mm. you know, like, and so um, even though the accusations of uh, the evil one are often true, um, the difference is that I'm in Christ, you know, when he is the accuser of the brethren, it's not that what he says is false about me. Um, you know, he, he probably remembers sins that I've forgotten. Mm. And if he just points out my sin, the difference is, is that my, I have an advocate before the father who defends me based on his own merit and, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is my high priest. And so, uh, he's the reason why I'm going to heaven. He's the reason why I'm valuable, you know? And, and what's amazing, dude, it's not, not only has he given us himself, he is making us like himself. Yeah, and so you know, so uh, my his value is now becoming literally, literally, I am becoming more like Christ, um, more valuable all the time, more Christ-like, and I, and one day he'll finish what he started in us, man. I mean, just the gospel is what his folks desperately need, and um, I'm so thankful that God was gracious to me and didn't give me what I deserved. Amen, brother. Amen. I think, again, you're driving us back to sort of the upward renewal that is inherent to Christianity, right? To know Christ and to mm-hmm. make him known. That's the great reward. And that that is a sufficient end in a way that my happiness and my vocational or educational life isn't. The presence mm-hmm. or lack of a romantic partner, um, those things like the 
the prodigal son are going to show themselves insufficient to sustain uh, a human life, but to know Christ mm-hmm. and to make him known, that's a project that we will will be in for eternity. And so it all so much of this is about the right frame to see our circumstances through. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you when you have the wrong frame, it's it's not surprising that your understanding gets distorted. And so if your life is if, if you're looking at life thinking, well, I need to be in an engaging romantic relationship. Well, that frame is going to push you to bad decisions because it's inadequate. But if the idea mm-hmm. is to know Christ and make him known, well, then that reframes in such a way that you can press on. Mm-hmm. Amen, buddy. Amen. Well, so one of the things I just kind of want to get us to on on a fine point here. Uh, this is something that I saw on Twitter once upon a time uh, describing an individual who had chosen to end their life. And the person on Twitter said that this individual had died from mental illness. Um, mental illness is a buzzword. And we've talked to uh, Sam even in this episode about how to think through that better. But just to put the question as, as directly in front of ourselves and our listeners as we can, should Christians consider suicide death from mental illness? No. Um, and I'll tell you why. The default setting of the church must be that suicide is morally culpable sin, that it is self-murder. That has been the position of Christianity for near 2,000 years. Um, That needs to be the default setting. Now, on the flip side of that, the reason why we believe those who take their own life, who are believers, um, that they go to heaven is because they're saved by grace through faith in Christ, that we're not saved by our good works. Amen. And so with that said, I think we need to err on the side of grace. I don't think we need to try to make medical diagnosis, um, if that makes sense, because we don't know their frame of mind. We don't know. I, I think we and there's no doctor who can know that. There's no one who can know that um, where moral culp- culpability or the will begins and, um, you know, mental illness or mental breakdown or however you want to describe it starts. Um, and it, it's the same way with any neurological illness that's going on. You think of Alzheimer's, you think of, um, um, you think of Parkinson's, um, dementia. And so, you know, I think we just need to, to just say, like if I was preaching some, a Christian's funeral who had taken their life, I would say that, um, I would talk to the family and, um, I would encourage them to permit me to, um, reject suicide, to, to encourage folks there not to follow that path, but also to for us to realize that God is, is gracious to his children and that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, um, not based on whether or not we make all the right holy decisions, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that if the, if the church starts to say that, well, like Susan Condone said, that, um, that suicide is death by mental illness, if, if that's the default setting, um, then there's literally no reason why someone shouldn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. Because if they do commit suicide, then it's due to mental illness always. And I think there's a double standard. I think it's just the culture, the wickedness of our culture, um, calling suicide brave and, and all this nonsense that we see. Um, they're, they're, that's the culture getting into the church or, or ungodliness or paganism getting into the church. Uh, where where they can they have no framework biblically. Um, the Bible says not do not kill. Right. And uh, I mean that's what the Hebrew says. And 
traditionally throughout church history, they always included suicide um, in that command, that it's self-murder. So, so listener, whenever someone commits suicide, the default setting in our culture is to say that person had mental illness. But if someone murders someone else, the default setting is to say that person is guilty of a crime. And, and so what is the difference? Why does someone taking their own life um, say that it's mental illness? And then why does taking someone else's life say that it's murder? Um, you know, it, 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 both of them are murder. Yeah. And if, you, if, if the person had killed somebody else and we would hold them accountable, then we have to hold them accountable if they take their own lives. Because if if mental illness is the reason they're taking their own life, then we would have to justify not only if they took their own life, but if they took somebody else's life or, or whatever they did, because it's mental illness. It's not something they can help. That's what right. we're saying. But you think of the cognitive ability it takes to end your life. Like like think of this movie, for example, this documentary. You have to drive to the bridge. So you got to be able to operate a motor vehicle or you got to be able to get on a bus or you got to get some sort of transportation to get there. And then you have to have the wherewithal to know that I've got to climb over this ledge and I've got to jump and it's going to end my life. I'm no longer going to be able to breathe. I'm no longer going to be able to see. I'm no longer going to be able to think my heart's going to stop. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to know all those things. And then to say that that person is capable of doing all that. And not only that, most of these people held a job or they talked on the phone, or they, you know what I'm saying? Like they, there's all these high functioning things they did, but now because they decided to take their own lives, we're saying all of a sudden they don't lack the um, mental capability to choose otherwise, that it's an illness that got them. Yeah. Look, I, I'm, I don't think that that holds water um, any way you look at it. I don't think it holds water from the Bible. I don't think even from a secular standpoint, I don't think it logic is logically consistent. And uh, folks that are telling these people, like I, I can't imagine telling someone who's battling suicidal thoughts that if they do um, take their life, that they're just succumbing to an illness. I'm just, I'm just like, I, I mean, that person should lose their license to practice whatever pseudo psychology they're practicing. I mean, it's evil. It's wicked. Um, these people got to fight. You, you, you've got to fight these desires. And why? Because they're contrary to God. That's why. It's the same way we fight, same reason we fight all other sin. And so I want to encourage you. I, and this is what I encourage in counseling. I encourage people to fight these desires and to pray God to, to relieve these desires and pray God to intervene and, and to lean on other believers and lean on other Christians and I mean, it just I, I'm just burdened because I think that we're going to see an uptick in it. The more that suicide is justified in our culture, the more people we're going to see who take their lives. And it's so tragic because, I mean, when I when I was watching this documentary, man, I was thinking, man, these people just need the truth more than anything. They just need to know basic biblical morality, you know, and basic biblical scripture and the hope that the scriptures contain. I mean, it's just so sad. I agree, man. I, I know it's kind of passe to talk, I guess, in some circles about a worldview, but a worldview makes all the difference. If you know mm -hmm. that you're created in the image of God and you uniquely bear dignity from that, if you know that the God who made you in his image has a purpose for you and you have a, uh, it, I mean, it really is an adventurous stewardship to capitalize on for his glory. If you know that there is waiting for you on the other side of the circumstances of your earthly life, reward or consequence 
for the choices you have made. And that Mm -hmm. there is uh, also that in Christ, nothing is more determinative than his death and righteousness on your behalf. Um, You have an infinite number of resources to make use of. If on the other side, you view yourself as a cosmic accident, human history is a cosmic accident, your circumstances are ultimately ultimate because uh, there's nothing beyond the natural order. Uh, your worldview is going to push you in the wrong direction. And when when Christians go to the godless worldview and say, ah, yeah, actually, the way you think about your life is ultimately going to be defined by your circumstances, your difficulty, you are, you know, you're subject to this nebulous thing we call mental illness. Uh, you're robbing them of the very things that would allow them not just to live, but to thrive. And mm-hmm. there's no reason for the church to do that. We have better things in the faith than those outside the faith do. We have better resources mm-hmm. to keep people alive and flourishing. So why go borrow from from something that is far, far, far inadequate? Right, right. And I mean, you know, we're there are there are uh, mental mental breakdown or sure. mental uh, like deterioration, brain sure. deterioration, like and that can, that can affect all this stuff. Um, but even then. If if someone takes someone's life, if someone, you know what I'm saying? Like we still hold them accountable. And I think all you and I are saying is that if we would hold them accountable, if they did something else, then you have to hold them accountable for this, too. You know? Yeah, I do think there's sort of a push in in uh, criminal law to say that there's no such thing as actual evil. It's all basically circumstantial, right? It's um, it's oh, wow. mental illness or uh, these people were victimized by other people and couldn't help their acting. But we mm-hmm. we know intrinsically how unsatisfying that is. When you mm-hmm. watch a true crime documentary and you realize this individual stalked that individual and developed a very complex plan to prey upon them and then carried that plan out successfully and brutalized that person and took their life, you, you realize immediately it's unsatisfactory to say, well, they're just victims of circumstance. Mm-hmm. And the same lens, as you've already pointed out, has to be applied to the idea of suicide. Now, we talked previously with Sam about um, mental illness being a real thing, but also sort of a squishy, nebulous definition that, that we can't rely on objectively. And so what mm-hmm. we can objectively rely on is God's revelation in Christ and say, oh, actually, that's what I know for sure. I know that God made me in his image. He has a plan for me. And I'm I'm accountable to him. And and to frame our circumstances there, rather than with sort of the uh, the undefined psychobabble of contemporary therapeutic society. You know, we, we we've mentioned Philip Reef on here before, but Philip Reef really saw this coming that everything in life was moving toward me not experiencing difficulty. He called it the triumph of the therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And when therapy uh, becomes the dominant motif of life, suicide becomes a real option because it can appear to be the only way to get relief from difficulty that's left to an individual. But Mm -hmm. we don't ultimately live in a therapeutic world. We live in Christ's world. And he is uh, the the determining factor of life. It's his will that determines our circumstances. Uh, It's him who is our joy. And so we have to reject that therapeutic understanding of life Mm -hmm. and embrace, uh, embrace our identity as bearers of the image of God. Amen. I would just, I would say that to a listener. Just practically, right? I think there may be people who tune in to listen to this and say, man, I'm, I'm thinking about suicide. Well, for, for one, I want to tell you absolutely do not do that and don't continue contemplating that as a solo project. Mm-hmm. Find your church, find your pastor, 
If you say, man, I don't have any of that stuff. Uh, thankfully, we live in a world where there's a suicide hotline you can call and you can get real help and someone to talk this over with. That number mm-hmm. is 800-273-TALK. This, this shouldn't be a, a solo decision. Uh, in fact, that's the worst way to come to a conclusion on uh, the continuation of your life. But the thing I want to push back into you is, is say, God made you in his image. You have agency. You're not a victim of your circumstances. So many of the cultural narratives now tell us that we're victims. We're victims of the decisions our parents to uh, and how they parented us. Or we're victims of systemic institutions that, uh, you know, push us in this direction or that and, and disenfranchise us. You have to fight to say, I can make choices today that make my life better or worse and to fight to make those decisions that reflect your agency as an image bearer and keep making them in such a way that you see the good of choosing wise courses. Mm -hmm. Um, I am so legitimately frightened. I mean, I I don't think it's going to affect the kingdom. I don't think it affects uh, Christ's reign, but I do think it affects people I care about. Uh, I am legitimately frightened by how our culture wants to define everyone as a victim of someone else. Mm-hmm. If you're a victim, you have no agency. All you can do is sort of attempt to escape. Um, we have to fight that and say, no, I'm an active agent who can meaningfully control my circumstances. And then the other practical thing I would just give is someone who cares about people who are hurting. Don't believe that somebody with the right set of chemicals can make all this go away for you. Um You know, we have a therapeutic culture. It's brought on a pharmaceutical culture. And we assume there's a pill for every ailment. Um, That's just not the case. Sometimes the pain can't be addressed with a pill. Sometimes the frustration and the thoughts can't go away with a pill. Sometimes if the if the thinking can go away with a pill, what you lose with it is is too costly to make that choice. Uh-huh. So again, fight to live in the world as it exists. Fight to live mentally, self-consciously in the world that Christ is Lord over. And remember that since he is Lord and you're made in his image, you have real opportunity to act as an agent in your life for your own good, ultimately uh-huh. for his glory. Um, so the, those are the encouragements I want to give out to to somebody who may be thinking about ending their life. You're made with infinite dignity because of uh, the image of God you bear. You have to fight to live in his world and certainly don't. Don't think through this as a victim and don't think through this as a solitary project. Get somebody who can tell you the truth around you. Mm-hmm. I found it I found it helpful too to you know sing uh, surround yourself with uh, positive um enjoyable things. Yeah. Um yeah. don't surround yourself with a culture of death. Um make pop culture choices that are um, uplifting and encouraging, at least until you are strengthened to maybe wrestle with some more difficult, um, difficult things and, you know, worship God, sing songs of praise to him, pray for others, talk to others, mm-hmm. build relationships with others. And I mean, find a church, find a local church. Um, even if you got to drive an hour to get there, however long it is worth having that godly community who will point you towards uh, human flourishing. And, um, you know, I, I've just found great comfort in that, man, and great comfort in the church. I love coming and singing songs because I'm because I'm singing with cancer survivors. I'm singing with um, folks who have laid loved ones to rest mm-hmm. and whose hearts are broken. But yet they they stand next to me and sing praises to, you know, the God who gives and the God who takes away. And uh, I mean, it's just there's something surreal, man, about um, 
there's something beautiful about people from all walks of life, um, scoundrels on their own, but yet clean, cleaned up by Jesus, standing side by side and trusting and enjoying him on a Sunday morning, celebrating his resurrection, you know, and um, yeah. at the very least, you know, folks um, go find a church and get plugged in. And I found that the more that I'm focused on others um, in those difficult times, you know, the, the better it is um, to, um, to my own thinking, you know, mm-hmm. to my own, uh, it sends me Godward, you know, instead of running to the mirror, I just, brother, I just haven't found much, uh, much help in the mirror. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my whole life. I know what uh, you see in the mirror. I can imagine that's not much help. <laughs> amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. But, uh, man, I find help in the Lord and, and help in, in others. I, I've, uh, you know, and I, and when I'm by myself, I'm praying, I'm singing, um, when I'm, you know, even when I'm in the shower, man, I've got, uh, Sovereign Grace Christian music on usually. And I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's beneficial and encourages me and sends me, sends me Godward and helps uh, catechize my thinking to where it's, um, godly and, and not, uh, discouraging, you know? Yeah, no, I get it. I don't think that we would want to give the impression that we think, you know, some, some positive music like Christian radio is going to fix this, but we also want to be clear that we are physical beings who are also spiritual. And so what we do with ourselves, with our time, our attention, it affects mm-hmm. how we think and how we feel. And so um, mm-hmm. things like getting sleep and getting good food, um, getting out and uh, being, you know, uh, in the sunshine, serving other people. Those are real practical helps that move our mental states like those are physical things we can do that affect the immaterial part of ourselves and we should not despise them. We should make full use of them. Right. And one of the, one of the main characters in this chef, what was his name? Um, the guy who was pacing on the bridge a lot. Gene. So Gene, um, he would respond often just randomly about, well, I should just go kill myself. Yeah. You know, and just think of you get in the habit of saying things like that and your mind, you, it's almost like muscle memory, right. you know, you train your mind to think that way. And so in order to get out of that thinking, you have to get your mind retrained. And it, it, it takes time. It's not something overnight where you're going to change habits. But by doing all these other things and not doing like Gene did in those moments, uh, refusing to or rejecting that and say, I'm going to work to um, retrain my mind to think on good things or holy things. And um, and set out a plan and actually and labor to stick with it. You can dig out of those holes, um, especially with an army, you know, a local church army with you of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, you you can. And so I um, I just want to encourage you to fight, fight, fight um, because and you fight because Jesus is worth the fight. You you don't. So if you're fighting because. You know, I, I'm going to be happy, hell or high water, you know, um, regardless, I'm going to be happy. Um, you know, in six months, if you're still not happy, well, then you'll just think that your fighting didn't work. Um, but if you're fighting for God's glory and if you're fighting because Jesus is worth the fight, he is your Lord. Well, then he's still going to be your Lord six months from now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you, he's worth the fight. If he's the reason you're fighting, the reason is constant. It doesn't change. But if it's it's because I'm fighting, so I'll never feel like this again. Well, you know, a year down the road, let's say you get out of the hole and you're not feeling like that anymore and you think everything's okay. Well, then something happens. 
something difficult in life because we live in a sinful world, cursed, fallen creation. And then all of a sudden you're back in the hole again because the reason why you're fighting was something other than the Lordship of Christ. And so I, I just want to encourage you to to look to Jesus, constantly look to him Amen. and to continue fighting any desire that's contrary to him. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Well, I think um, I think that's kind of the best note we can end on. Look to Jesus, fight to uh, to know Him, to love Him, and, and see life through Him. Anything else you got to say on this subject? No, I I think uh, just one brief thing, man. This uh, the couple that what bothered me most about this show, about this uh, documentary, was the parents where the dad told his son that he didn't want him to suffer anymore. So he he basically told him to go ahead and take his own life. Mm. And uh, that just, as a father, man, I, I did, that just really, I don't know if I'll ever forget that. Yeah. Um, And it, it made me thankful for my own dad. It made me want to be a better father to my own children. It made me thankful for God being such a good, loving, caring father who's, never done me any wrong or never gave me wrong. He never, he's never told me anything unwise that would harm me. You know, I mean, it's just that, that hurt my heart more than anything in that, in that, um, in that documentary. Yeah. I think that we sometimes get tricked about what loving really means, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes it feels, it feels loving to tell people, Hey, this thing that you think is your best solution really is it. But so much of speaking the truth in love is actually knowing what the truth is and being uh, and and caring enough to actually tell the truth, even if it's not what's wanted. So I, I don't mm-hmm. want to. I don't. I mean, God save me from ever seeing my child in in chronic pain, right? But mm-hmm. I also want to love my kid enough to tell him that pain is not ultimate. Amen. Amen. And still got to fight. You know, yeah. we got to fight, fight, fight. Yeah. Because man, I, I they're sitting there and they're missing him. I mean, you could just see it. Yeah. And I'm like. I just, uh, I I can't I can't wrap my head around that thinking. Yeah. They just desperately needed the the word of God. They desperately needed the truth. But. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for listening. This is a difficult topic, and we hope it's been a help to you in some way. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us, we're on almost all social media platforms at PCCD Pod. Um, Jerry, where can people reach out to you directly if they want to engage with you more? You can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Gab at Jared H. Moore. And you can also, I've got a book that I've co-authored with two other men, and it's called The Pop Culture Parent, where we argue about, uh, encourage folks, Christians to participate in pop culture with their kids, to help them think biblically about it, and to help mature them to where they'll be ambassadors for Christ to their peers. And so I want to encourage you to check that out. It's called The Pop Culture Parent. You can find it wherever you buy your books. Yeah. Yeah. I would recommend you guys do that. Uh, like Jared, I'm on a bunch of whole, uh, excuse me, a whole bunch of social media platforms, including Gab. And my handle is always at Right Jeff. Uh, I'll be there until they say I can't be there anymore. And I'd love <laughs> to hear from you guys. Uh, again, we're at PCC Pod on most of those. We appreciate you listening. If you got a chance to give us a review, we'd appreciate that. Uh, Jared, I guess I'm going to take us out by reminding our listeners to live every moment as if they are before the face of God. Because you are. We'll talk to you all next time.